We are in Isaiah chapter 21. And if you were to read this, well, let me just tell you what happened this past Wednesday night. Um, Ruth Rudinsky asked me, what are we singing, what are we reading on Sunday so that I can know how to pick songs? And I told her Isaiah 21, and she read through it real quickly at our worship team practice and went, well, that isn't any help. <laughs> because if you read Isaiah 21, it's not a nice story. Nobody had any, oh, that's okay. Thank you for trying anyway. Okay, thank you, sweetie. And I'm not going to take time this morning to read through Isaiah 21 because reading through it wouldn't necessarily help us in what we need to talk about today in the words of our famous musician. But there are a couple things you need to see. First of all, this says in verse 1 of chapter 21, an oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. Now, in some of your Bibles, there may be an edited, an edited portion that has a little title above this particular section. It's called, it, it might say something like, in my case, it says, Fallen, Fallen is Babylon. Some of yours may just simply say, The Fall of Babylon. Some of them may say, uh, uh, A Prophecy About Babylon. Well, how in the world do we know that this is about Babylon? Well, let me show you. Not a really great image because it's so crowded and so full. But if you look in the very center of this image, you see in red the word Iraq. Just to the right and down a little bit in black letters with a red line under it is Babylon. And then you notice Babylon is located along the Euphrates River. To the right of the Euphrates River, the east of the Euphrates River, is the Tigris River. And it then flows down into this big body of water down at the bottom over here, and that's the Persian Gulf. Okay? This body of water on the left of the, of the screen is the Red Sea. The big body at the upper left is the Mediterranean Sea. And the body of water at the top on the right is the Caspian Sea. But what we're looking at right now is the Euphrates River, the Tigris River, and how it empties into the Persian Gulf. And scholars tell us that one of the reasons why they know that this prophecy is about Babylon is because the, uh, the Tigris and Euphrates River area has so many different tributaries the closer it gets down to the Persian Gulf that literally, if you're looking at it from a distance, it almost looks like it's all water. There's just this reflection of water Kind of like a mirage, if you will. If, you know, if you've ever experienced a very hot day and you're looking off in the distance and you see what looks like water up on the horizon, that's kind of what this looks like from different varying perspectives. But this whole area, you'll notice just above the, the word Babylon, Babylon, just to the right of the word Iraq, you'll see in black letters, Babylonia. That was the ancient area known as Babylon. Above that was Assyria. Below it was Sumer. But Babylon, Babylon is a, is, a, is a city, 
But it's also an area, or a, 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 not a nation, but just a geographical area. And so what scholars understand is that Isaiah chapter 21 was prophesied by Isaiah about Babylon, ancient Babylon. Specifically, Babylon the city, but Babylon the nation. Now, we don't have time this morning to go through all of the different histories and all of the different things. So my point is I wanted to give us an understanding of what this book is about and why it's important to us. So first of all, let me tell you, there we go. Scholars haven't a clue. I read and I read and I read and I read and there is great divergence of opinion about what this particular book of the Bible is about. There are some scholars who say that Isaiah chapter 21 is referencing actions that occurred in the chapters of Isaiah versus uh, chapters 38 and 39. There are some scholars who say no, this is actually talking about Daniel 5. And uh, notice the difference. Isaiah was written sometime between the years 740 and 681 BC. Isaiah chapter 38 and 39, scholars believe, was written somewhere in the neighborhood of 712 and 711 B.C. So if Isaiah 21 is talking about the, the actions that occurred in Isaiah 39 and 38 and 39, then those, um, the, 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 the Isaiah prophecy of chapter 21 has to have been written before 712. Okay? It would have been 715, 720... Somewhere in that time. Okay? If it was Daniel, it's a hundred years or more, 150 years past Isaiah's lifetime. Some scholars say they don't believe in prophecy that talks about future events. Some prophet, some there was literally one uh, writing that I talked that I read that they said that they, they believe that this is actually Isaiah 21 is actually a palimpsest. Well, I looked had to look up the word palimpsest. I had read it once or twice in my life, but I didn't know what it meant. Basically, a palimpsest, P-A-L-I-M-P-S-E-T, palimpsest, is a scroll or a document or a tablet that was used, then scrubbed, and reused. And so there's one or two or three scholars who say, well, Isaiah 21 was written actually for both of these events. And we can show you and I, like, I, it went crazy. And I spent hours and hours and hours going, oh, this is not helpful to me, God. Remember, Ruth? It's not helpful to read this. Okay? So, <laughs> now, let me share with you just a little bit of what I did read and what I understood so that we're all coming from a basis. Okay? Daniel chapter 5 is this story about King Belshazzar in Babylon if you remember the story from, from Daniel, there was a king whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. And if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar had these dreams, and Daniel was called in to interpret the dreams. And I think my, my thing has finally... There we go. And it, Daniel was called in to, to interpret the dreams, and then at some point, Nebuchadnezzar um, actually became like an animal and living for seven years out in the field. It says hair became full of dreadlocks, his nails curled around on themselves like an eagle's claws, and he, he lost his mind until he turned his heart and his mind to the Almighty God. 
So Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of his time as a king, was worshiping and honoring Jehovah, the king of, I mean, the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar, in Daniel chapter 5, it's recorded that he's throwing a huge party for all of his consorts. They're having a wonderful time. And in their drunkenness, Belshazzar says to the steward, Hey, I want to make this a really cool party. Go into the storehouse and get all of those gold and silver goblets and plates that we took from that temple in Jerusalem and bring them out here so my friends can have a really nice place setting to enjoy this meal. So they literally went and they took all of the silver and gold plates and goblets that had been used in the worship of Lord God Jehovah and they ate and drank from them in a drunken party. And the story tells us in Daniel chapter 5 that a hand miraculously appears and scrapes into the plaster of the wall a message that's in a, in a coded message and everyone is suddenly not drunk anymore and they're going, what in the world is this? And so Daniel is sent for because Daniel has the ability to interpret. And Daniel comes in and he says, remember your father? Remember all that happened with your dad? And you didn't listen. And you didn't learn. And now what this is saying is that your time has come. And you are going to be overthrown. And you are going to die. And if you were to turn to Daniel, don't, you don't need to do it now, but if you were to turn to Daniel chapter 5, the last verse of Daniel 5 says, that very night Belshazzar died. Because we know from history that the Medes and the Persians literally lowered the level of the, of the type of the Euphrates River so that they could come in under the city of Babylon and take over. And literally, these people didn't have a clue what was going on because they were drunk in that party. And they were taken over, and then finally Belshazzar was killed. And then the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon. So, some scholars say Isaiah chapter 21 is prophesying that event. Other scholars say that Isaiah 38 through 39 is the event that's being pointed to by this chapter 21 in Isaiah. And that it's actually about this guy named Merodach Baladah, also known as Marduk Sreshavidili. Um, and the situation... This, I, believe me, I struggled with this for hours the other day. Um, Merodach Baladon has an interesting history with, ba with Babylon. He comes in and takes over during the time that King Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. And, and Babylon is kind of a vassal under Assyria. But Merodach Baladon comes in and takes over at a time where there's crises going on in Sennacherib's reign. And so Sennacherib can't mess with Merodach Baladon at this point because he's got so much else going on, trying to keep all the plates spinning on the poles, if you will. And while all of that's going on, Merodach Baladon, it says, according to not just the Bible, but also according to ancient Assyrian documents and ancient Babylonian documents, Merodach Baladon, it says, literally came in under the radar. If we were to go back, let me see if I can get it to come back. If we were to, to look at this map, where's Babylon? 
down in the lower part, or the middle part, I guess, if you will, and then Nimrod and Damascus are on the upper parts, kind of like an arc. You see the difference in color with the greens? Well, he literally would come down to the lower parts down here and try to get the different city-states and the different nations to come into alliance with him against King Sennacherib. And it's, it, if I remember correctly, there were three different times that Meledith Belladon ended up getting defeated. One time, Sennacherib was so brutal that he literally destroyed the whole city, it says, of Babylon. He destroyed the temples, he destroyed all of the ark, he destroyed all of the worship places, he destroyed absolutely everything, leaving it in a state of rubble because of Meredith Baladon. And so some scholars say that Isaiah chapter 21 is referencing this. I can't tell you which one it is or if it's either. I can tell you my opinion. And my opinion is I lean towards this one. And let me tell you why. Let's go ahead and look at Isaiah chapter 38 and 39. Um, I'm not going to read it to us. It's a familiar story for most of us. But if you want to go into it, you can look. I'm going to turn here just so that I can use it as kind of an outline for myself. But Isaiah 38 and 39. In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. Isaiah the prophet came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you're going to die. You will not recover. Isaiah then turns, Hezekiah then turns his face to the wall and prays a very deep, heartfelt, bitterly wept over prayer, pleading with God for his life. God relents, sends Isaiah back to say, You indeed are going to uh, have the thing that you promised. And it literally says, verse 8, Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz to turn back ten steps as a sign to Hezekiah. Um, then it goes on and it says in verse um, in chapter 39 that Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he'd been sick and had recovered. And this presence and these envoys, scholars understand that Meredith was trying to form alliances against the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. And so he sent these letters and these gifts and these envoys at the time that Hezekiah has recovered from his illness. Which scholars know that that was around the year 711 B.C. And it says in verse 2... Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. He showed them the treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah didn't show them. Now think about this, folks. Hezekiah in 711 is showing the leaders of Babylon all of the plates and goblets that they're going to be eating and drinking from in the year 530. Because where was the valuables of the nation? In the temple. Hezekiah literally showed them all of the plunder that they could come and get in 150 years. Or 100 years. 
So in verse 3, Isaiah the prophet comes to King Hezekiah and says to him, So what do these guys say? Where did they come from? Where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, Well, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, Well, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, Well, they have seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouse that I didn't show them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, You hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which is which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons will come from you, whom you will father. And they shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, Oh, I'm so sorry, I did a horrible thing. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I was so stupid. No, that's not what Hezekiah said. After hearing this horrible word from God through the prophet Isaiah, Hezekiah says, Oh, the word of the Lord that you've just spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. What? A stinking narcissist. You know what a narcissist is? Let me show you. A narcissist is someone with extreme selfishness. Someone with a grandiose view of their own talents and a craving for admiration. This man, Hezekiah, has seen God do miraculous, glorious, fabulous things in his life. Intimate things. He could pray to God. God changes his heart. God gives him signs and wonders. And then, when he messes up, because he thinks he's all that in a bag of chips, because all these bigwigs are coming along trying to, to woo him into their, 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 their confidence, he goes, Shh. This is great. And sure, here come and see all this stuff I've got. See how wonderful I am? Like my Facebook page. Look! And then God's word comes and says, You fool. Look what you did. You've set yourself and your nation and your future for failure. And what is his response? Hey, that's great what you just said. Because what you just said was that none of it's going to happen in my lifetime. I'm cool. What an incredible narcissist. But you know what's so crazy? If you were to go back and look at the list of kings, Hezekiah is listed as one of the good guys. He's one of the ones that did what God asked him to do, followed the ways of David his father. So how are you feeling right now about this narcissistic king of Israel, a king of Judah? What are your feelings right now? You don't have to say them out loud, but what are you thinking? See, the problem is, narcissism is not something from the ancient past. Narcissism is something that's very present even in this day. Think about it. Those of you who spend any time online, if you don't get at least one or two likes on your posts on Facebook, you think nobody's paying any attention to you. 
Or you're constantly sharing the one that everyone's talking about because you want to be in on the crowd. And that's just Facebook. We have this selfish mindset in this world today. It's all about me, my people, us. Now, I'm going to step into some really bad territory here. Black Lives Matter. Blue line. The blue line. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that's the police situation. How the police feel like they're not safe. And the black people don't feel like they're safe. And the white people are over on the other side go, well, what about us? All lives matter. And it's all this me. I don't want to feel insecure. I don't want to feel unsafe. I don't want to feel like I am less than. And I'm not saying that any of this stuff isn't genuine and real. It is very real in the hearts and the minds of the people that are living these lives. But the problem is that this is because most of our culture has walked away from the only hope that they have, and that's Jesus Christ. Okay? So we've got, literally, if you want to excuse the expression, we have the entire world going to hell in a handbasket, and we're sitting up here in Alaska going, well, it doesn't really affect me. I'm good. Do you know of any problems up here with shootings? Or any, any problems with the police shooting people in their cars? Or any problems with, with riots in the streets? Pretty quiet up here. When 2008, when the big financial crisis happened down in the lower 48 and all in the Western world, we were pretty much unscathed. It took a year or two for it to finally trickle to us. But when it did, it wasn't as bad as they were all talking about. Sure, we had to tighten our belts a little bit, but, you know, it was, it, was, it was more like a ripple or a little wave, not a tidal wave. See, up here, we're isolated. We don't have to worry about what the rest of the culture is going through because it doesn't really impact our lives. West Nile virus, psh, the birds die before they get through Canada. We don't have fleas up here. Well, we're starting to get fleas up here. We don't have snakes. Uh, maybe we have one. We have, forgive me, just as much a narcissistic attitude towards our brothers and sisters in our comfort. And see, one of the things I learned, this is so amazing. A couple, three weeks ago, I had borrowed a book through the online library system here at Noelween Library, and I was reading it on my Kindle. It's called... Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Brene Brown is not a Christian person. If she is, she doesn't publicly talk about her faith. She is a PhD in social work. She has done more than a decade, probably 20 years worth of research in the idea of shame and vulnerability. And she did a, 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 a TED video out of Houston. It became viral. It is one of the most watched videos on all of the TED.com website, and it talks about vulnerability, it talks about dealing with shame, it talks about um, being living, what she calls wholeheartedly, being enough. Regardless of what you're facing, it is, you are enough. It doesn't matter how bad things can be, it isn't, you are enough. And so she doesn't give Jesus Christ credit, she doesn't give Jesus Christ honor, she's not one that I would say, read this book because it's going to help you to grow as a Christian, but I do encourage you to read this book. I've read it through almost 100% and then my, my loan ended. And there's about 10 people in line for the online loan program 
plus the hard copy books at the library. So in order to be able to finish the book, I had to buy it through a used books thing on Amazon. And I finally got it, and I said, you know what, rather than try to pick up where I was, I'm just going to start reading it again. And so I just yesterday started reading this again. <clears throat> I got through one-fourth of the book, and I'll, I'll be switched if the first chapter of this book didn't address this idea of narcissism and me. And I wanted to share with you just a couple thoughts that I read because it just spoke volumes to me as a Christian, as a, as a human being, as a minister, and about as a pastor of a church. And so again, I cannot endorse this as good, solid, theologically sound Christian teaching, but I can tell you that this is good stuff and it's based on a solid decade plus of research. This isn't opinion. This is research that she has done with uh, the, in the area of shame and vulnerability. I'm going to have to do some excerpting because I, I don't have time to read you page after page after page. <clears throat> Kids today think they're so special. What's turning so many people into narcissists? My less than stellar response verged on smart-alecky. Yeah, I said, you can't swing a cat without hitting a narcissist. And she got tons of hate mail because she said something bad about a cat. <laughs> this is the world in which we live, folks. I'm offended. You offended me. Narcissism. Well, my less than stellar response first on smart allergy. Yeah, you can't swing a cat without hitting a narcissist. Also, I forgot to tell you, she's from Texas. And a lot of her colloquial expressions come out in her writing. But it stemmed from a frustration that I still feel when I hear the term narcissist turn around. Facebook is so narcissistic. Why do people think that they're doing it so important? Kids today are all narcissists. It's always me, me, me. My boss is such a narcissist. I mean, she thinks she's better than anyone. And always putting other people down. And while lay people are using narcissism as a catch-all diagnosis for everything from arrogance to rude behavior, researchers and helpful, helping professionals are testing that concept in every way imaginable. And I won't read all of it, but she did say that there is a conclusive proof that the narcissistic personality disorder diagnoses have doubled since the year 2002. Now, relying on yet another fine saying from my grandmother, it feels like the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Or is it? Are we surrounded by narcissists? Have we turned into a culture of self-absorbed, grandiose people who are only interested in power, success, beauty, and being special? Or are we so entitled that we actually believe that we're superior, even when we're not really contributing or achieving anything of value? Is it true that we lack the necessary empathy to be compassionate, connected people? Now, if you're like me, you're probably wincing a bit and thinking, yes, yes, that is exactly the problem. Oh, not with me, of course. But in general, that sounds about right. It feels good to have an explanation, especially one that conveniently makes me feel better about myself and places the blame on those people. In fact, whenever I hear people making the narcissism argument, it's normally served with a side of contempt, anger, judgment. I'll be honest, I don't feel those emotions as I'm writing this paragraph. Our first inclination is to cure 
the narcissists. By cutting them down to size, it doesn't matter if I'm talking to teachers, parents, CEOs, or my neighbors. The response is the same. These egomaniacs need to know that they're not special, that they're not that great, that they're not entitled to stuff, and that they don't need to get over themselves. I mean, that they need to get over themselves. No one cares. Now here's where all of this gets tricky. And frustrating. And maybe even a little heartbreaking. The topic of narcissism has penetrated the social consciousness enough that most people correctly associate with a pattern of behaviors that include grandiosity, a pervasive need for admiration, a lack of empathy, but what almost no one understands is how every level of severity in this diagnosis is underpinned by shame. Which means we don't fix narcissism by cutting people down to size and reminding folks of their inadequacies and smallness. Shame is more likely to be the cause of these behaviors and not the cure. I, I, was, I stopped after reading those words. I stopped because it just gripped me. This is another quote that I found. I think abundance and scarcity are two sides of the same coin. The opposite of never enough isn't abundance, or more than you could ever imagine. The opposite of scarcity is enough, or what I call wholeheartedness. What she's saying is her research is showing her that people who live in scarcity where they don't feel like they have anything, I don't get enough sleep, I don't get enough time, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough friends, I don't have enough, or people who have everything they could possibly want. She said that's really the same thing. The, the best place to be is in the middle where you are enough, where your life is enough, where you are satisfied with who you are and what you're doing, where you, where you reside, and it's just enough, and I'm good, and I'm whole. And I'm healthy. Now, again, that's a psycho thing. Psycho-babble thing. It's a social work thing. But there's some spiritual truth there. Because in my life, I lived as a Christian with shame for 30 years. And it wasn't until I was 40-some years old that I finally, finally was able to get rid of my shame. By giving it to Jesus by faith and walking away. Literally. I didn't do anything magical, mystical, or, or super duper stuff. It just, I walked up to an altar of prayer. I knelt down. I said, no hocus pocus, God. I don't want tears. I don't want people pounding me on my back and praying for me. I just want you and me alone. No emotions. I want you to take this away from me. I'm tired of carrying this burden of shame. I'm leaving it here. I stood up in that altar and I walked away. And from that day to this, I do not carry shame ever again. It is no longer a burden that I carry. But I can tell you that it did, in fact, impact my life in the same way that she's been talking about this. It was always, I didn't feel good enough, I didn't feel like I had enough, I didn't feel like I was a good enough father, a good enough husband. I was, it was these whispers that were in my brain all the time. She says, her friend calls them gremlins. So what are the gremlins saying to you today? Yeah, I'm not good enough, I, I can't do this, I'm not going to be able to do this. You see, there are people who project Grandiosity, selfishness, narcissism. But the reality is, they're hunkered down in the corner, scared to death that there's not enough. Or, I have it all, I have no satisfaction. 
And the only real hope, the only real sense of well-being is found on a foundation of Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not, what's the rest of it? I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You see, we who name Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have the hope that they need. Whether they're in scarcity or abundance, they are living out a life of I am not satisfied and I don't know how to respond. And the end result is I go into defense mode and I lash out and I fight. And I try to prove my worth. But when you get to the point where you truly have a real, vital, living relationship with the Lord God, and you truly depend on Him and Him alone, that stuff no longer has power over you. And so, my friends, as we are going about our day-to-day, and encountering all of these stupid narcissists. We need to understand and see them from the point of Jesus Christ. We need to recognize the truth that they are in pain and need help. And this word coming from James chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 is what spoke to my heart over the last 48 hours as I was mulling over and preparing this sermon. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You see, we're called as Christians to love our neighbors. We're not called as Christians to criticize those narcissistic so-and-sos who think they're all that in a bag of chips when they're really not. And if I had a chance, I would just take them down a peg or two because they need to be taken down a peg or two. I'm sick and tired of hearing it. I'm unfriending them. I'm not following them anymore on Facebook. This is ridiculous. I don't want them in my life. You don't need that kind of negativity in your life. If people like that talk to you like that, then just drop them out of the, like a hot potato and walk off. But isn't that narcissistic? Because we're called as Christians to self-sacrifice. We're called as Christians to be kind and loving. Look at the people that the whole world honors. Mother Teresa. Who literally held filth in her hands and kissed it because of her love for God. That's what it means to follow the royal law. What it means is when you've got a person who's in your world that just gets on your last nerve, you need to walk up to them and say, I love you. In whatever way you can. In whatever way they'll receive. Because that's what Jesus expects of you. But see, if we live like King Hezekiah, None of this affects me. I'm far enough away from it. I heard the word of God. not going to be happening in my lifetime, so we're good. All you've done is fallen into that same trap. Living selfishly. Living without empathy. 
living without love. And so that's, that's what I see as the, the lesson of Isaiah 21. Sure, the words that are in Isaiah 21 aren't very helpful. But what they point us to are incredibly helpful. Love. 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 Love.